Good morning, church. I wanted to say quickly thank you to all here who have served in the armed forces. Today we celebrate Memorial Day this weekend. And uh, we're blessed to live in a country like ours where we can worship freely. Amen? So thank you to the sacrifice of those family members and those here who know good friends and family who lost their lives in, in battle. The Sermon on the Mount is coming to a close. And this week is the first of two messages on Jesus' epilogue. Remember chapter 7, verse 12, last week, was the bookend of the body of the sermon. Now we're in the final thoughts of Christ this week. When we first started this mini-series on the Sermon on the Mount, I mentioned that it's probably a collection of the teaching of Jesus over a period of time at one location, maybe not all given on one day. It's unlikely that Jesus preached it all in in one sitting, although that, that may have been the case, but more likely, it's the result of several days of teaching on the side of a hill by the Sea of Galilee, and he brings his disciples and us on a journey through the sermon. So with his final few thoughts, Jesus is going to call his disciples to action by presenting them with four pairs, four juxtapositions, four four pairs of possibilities for this or that's, the saved and the unsaved, the true and the false prophet, the known and the unknown, and the wise and the foolish. Jesus progressively heightens what it means to be a disciple of the kingdom of heaven with these four juxtapositions. He says more as he goes along. There are those who are saved and those who are not. There are those who act like they're saved, even though they're from the enemy. There are those who think they are saved, but they aren't. And there are those who are probably saved, but do not apply the teaching of Jesus wisely. This week, we're going to look at the first three pairs, verses 13 through 23. But before we do, before we get there, I want to call you to prepare yourself. These words of Jesus are intentionally heart-searching and gospel-filled. They call us to stringent self-examination. They cannot be ignored, and everyone who hears them must respond. So let's open our Bibles up to Matthew chapter 7 and stand together as we read verses 17 through 23. Again, Matthew 7, starting in verse 13, going to 23. This is the word of the Lord. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not 
prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray as you're seated. Lord, we humbly come before your word today, desiring to understand it, desiring to apply it. We pray that you would use your word to conform us to the life of Christ, to reflect him in everything that we do. We're so grateful that you've given us your word, the things that you want us to know. So we pray that we would take it seriously, bring them to our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen. If the epilogue of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' call to response, then these four sections serve as unique reflections of that same call. Okay, ultimately, each four of these are a call to faith. He wants us to reorganize our lives around him and the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus wants from us. Jesus is king. Matthew's been saying that the whole time, right? Jesus is king, and he's given us the manifesto of his kingdom. So now what are we going to do with it? That's the question at hand. He presents us in each of these four sections two possibilities, two possible realities for every person. And some include a direct command, like the first two sections. The third doesn't give us a command, but we'll find it challenging regardless. And the fourth, well, we'll have to wait until next week for the fourth. So again, he gives us pairs of possibilities. The first pair is the way of life or destruction. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There are two possible paths every person can take, two possible gates to enter, the wide gate and the easy gate, or the wide path, the easy path, the narrow gate, the hard way. Jesus commands us in verse 13 to to take the narrow gate. The two possibilities are represented simply. It's the saved and the unsaved. Those who are saved are on the hard path and have entered by the narrow gate. Those who are unsaved are on the easy path and have entered by the wide gate. Again, simple. But here's a question worth asking at this point. Why would Jesus intentionally teach that the path to life would be hard and that few would find it? If you were trying to grow a great following, this might not be the best approach, right? Wouldn't you want to say that your way of life is easy, and that many people are welcome. But that's not what we see at at all. In fact, we seem to see the exact opposite. The road that leads to destruction is wide and full of people. The easy way, the most accommodating way, ends up being the way to death. So Jesus tells his followers to enter by the narrow gate. But in what way is the gate narrow? And in what way is the path hard? The entrance point of the Christian faith, the gate, the narrow gate, it's narrow because it demands a narrow faith. The claims of Jesus are narrow. If you're going to have life, the only way to have it is in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that's it. He even tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one goes to the Father except through him. And that's a claim to exclusivity. 
The gate is narrow because all other beliefs have to be checked at the door. No baggage is allowed in. No one enters the narrow gate unless they're willing to divest themselves of their idolatry and give up their false beliefs about the world. But who's willing to do that? We love our sin. and We're naturally bent toward the gate of destruction. All those who enter by the narrow gate only do so by the grace of God. It's an act of grace that brings a person to the narrow gate in the first place. And it's an act of grace that opens the gate to them. The gate is open to all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Amen? It's by grace that we are saved through faith in Christ alone. And it's in the word of God alone that we find these truths. So the narrow gate, it's narrow because it demands that we submit to the divine revelation found in the scriptures and let go of everything else. Meanwhile, the gate of destruction is wide because all other beliefs are welcome there. The key to get you past that gate is not hard to find. At the gate of destruction, you can believe in one God or many gods or no gods at all. You can believe that salvation is in religion or other people or even in your inner self or that no one needs salvation. The wide gate is proudly pluralistic and welcomes all beliefs and proclaims that every worldview is the same. It welcomes those with really harsh dogmatic beliefs and it welcomes those with really loose beliefs. It becomes and welcomes the tolerant and the intolerably ignorant. The wide gate is easy to find and easy to pass through. It's attractive because nothing is required. It demands nothing of you. And because of all these things, there are many people who opt to pass through the wide gate. The narrow gate, though, is the exact opposite. And there are not many people who find that gate attractive. Those who pass through the narrow gate are few. But those who pass through the narrow gate, who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ alone for salvation, they next find a path that is difficult. It doesn't get easier from there. If the narrow gate wasn't enough, now we find a hard way. So what makes it the hard way? After divesting yourself of all worldly beliefs and placing your faith in Jesus Christ, Christians are confronted with the call to be holy as God is holy. They're they're told by Christ in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount to give up every sin that they once held, to live a righteous life. And as they walk down the path, they find that despite the great grace given to them at the narrow gate, there's still a lot of sin. They harbor hate in their hearts toward others. They lust after what's not theirs. They gossip and slander others. They make a show of their new beliefs in order to stand out to others. They're hypocrites who don't treat other people how they want to be treated. Yet they judge others for their sin, unable to see their own sin. And all of this slowly comes out as they walk down the hard way. It's like a crucible they've been put in. When they think they've dealt with one sin in partnership with the Holy Spirit, another pesky sin pops up. But after a long journey, they find that they're no longer the wretched sinner that entered by the narrow gate. In fact, by God's grace, again, they see themselves slowly being conformed to the very 
image of Christ. So the hard path really becomes the path of joy and life. In the book of Acts, a name for the new religion that we know as Christianity is commonly referred to as the way. It's the name that Christians often used to call themselves really early on. The imagery of a path or a journey has spoken to the hearts of Christians for two millennia. The Christian life starts at a narrow gate where you have to squeeze through and it journeys down a hard path. John Bunyan most famously captured this idea in his classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress. Many of you knew I had to go here this morning, right? The main character, his name is Christian and he's called to enter by the wicked gate or the narrow gate. And he journeys down a perilous path, constantly confronted by new things and new dangers and new joys. Bunyan published the book in 1678, and it stayed relevant for so long because it taps into the Christian experience so well, right? Those here in this room who have been a Christian for 30 or 40 or 50 years can testify that the Christian life is a hard path indeed. But it's also the way of joy and life, amen? The other possibility, the other path, the road that leads to destruction, Jesus describes that path as easy. Nothing is required. No one expects you to be holy. The path of destruction is full of many opinions and lacks morality, and it only ends in death. Those who opt to enter by the wide gate and journey down the easy road are those who are only concerned about the here and the now, that their journey be easy, that it not be too difficult for them. If they could see their destination, maybe they would think twice, but they can't see it because those on that path are blind. What path are you on? Have you entered by the narrow gate, which is Jesus Christ? Have you received the free gift of God's grace? Are you on the hard path of joy and life, being conformed to the image of Christ, becoming the best version of you by his power? This first pair is the distinction between the saved and the unsaved. It's very simple. So have you been saved by God's grace? That's the question. The second pair is the good or the bad tree. Beware of false prophets, Jesus says, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And every healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. The first pair in verses 13 and 14 simply represent the saved and the unsaved. It's clear. Then the second pair introduces some more complexity. Here we find the true and the false, the good and the bad. There are those who are unsaved and actively acting as if they are saved in order to do harm. And Jesus calls them false prophets, ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. That's a powerful word picture one that we use frequently in our modern way of life. And again, we find a command here. Beware of false prophets. Second to the first command in 13, enter by the narrow gate. 
Jesus calls us to actually seek out and find who these false prophets might be, to act in wisdom. But how? How are we going to tell if someone is a false prophet or a true prophet? Jesus says in verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Before we dive into that, I think it's very important that we slow down and define some terms. What does Jesus mean by prophet? Prophets were a classic staple of the Old Testament, Old Testament Israel. God communicated to the nation through the prophets. The role of the prophets was to be the mouthpiece of God. They spoke God's words after him. Some did this through mighty works and direct pronouncements like Elijah or Nathan. And some did this through writing like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. We usually think of a prophet as someone who tells the future. And sometimes those guys did tell the future. But that wasn't their primary function. The primary function of a prophet has and always will be to to pronounce the word of God to his people. Again, the primary function of a prophet is to pronounce the word of God to his people. That's what prophets do. That primary function carried into the church in the New Testament. There were those who were given the gift of prophecy. And again, we shouldn't think of that spiritual gift as just telling the future, although again, we find that in the book of Acts. But we should think of it as primarily proclaiming the word of God. And that's why Paul encourages the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 14 to seek the gift of prophecy over the gift of tongues. Not because it was a better mystical experience, but because it's better to communicate the word of God clearly than unclearly. So now that we have the scriptures before us, the prophetic role is to proclaim the written word in its fullness and with accuracy so that people can conform their lives to it. In that way, the sermon is a prophetic speech act. That's why when considering the words of Christ here, we, th- we think of false teachers as well as false prophets. We think of them as essentially the same. False prophets are those who claim to teach the word of God, but do not. They claim to speak God's word for him, but they do not. They substitute their beliefs and their convictions for God's word. False prophets have always been a problem because it's easy to manipulate people if you claim to speak for God. That's not hard to do. Jeremiah dealt with them extensively in the Old Testament. Hear the words of Jeremiah 6, 13 through 14. It's a famous passage denouncing false prophets. For from the least to the greatest of them, that is false prophets, Everyone is greedy for unjust gain, and from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wounds of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. This is the very essence of the false prophet, to tell people what they want to hear in order to gain notoriety and money. But back to the question at hand, how are we going to tell if someone is a false prophet or a true prophet. Again, Jesus says in verse 16 and onward, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad, bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. 
The imagery is easy to understand. It's very helpful for us that Jesus puts it this way. Good trees, and what he means by good is those that bear fruit good for humans to eat. Good trees are easy to spot as they bear their fruit. And it's the same with trees that do not bear fruit that is good for humans to eat. The thorn bush and the thistle don't bear grapes and figs. The ESV here uses the terms healthy and diseased, which I think may obscure the point a little bit, although the word can be translated like that. But it can also be translated simply as good and bad. Jesus is making a distinction in kind. It's not like an unhealthy fig tree bears apples. right? The point is that analyzing the goodness of fruit takes time. Has anybody raised fruit trees in their backyard? It takes a while for trees to bear fruit. And it's only when that tree bears fruit that we can know if it's worth having in our orchard. The same goes for the false and the true prophet. The fruit that they bear will take time to see. But when it is seen, the evidence is clear. But now another question. What does the fruit represent? What is the fruit? What should we be on the lookout for? The scriptures give us several tests for false prophets. I've got three for you. First, from Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22. Listen carefully. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the names of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So the presumptuous prophet will be known if what he says does not come to pass. The true prophet does not speak his own words, but the word of God. And God's word never fails, right? Now, we don't, we don't have many today who are acting that way in a prophetic role as if to, to tell the future or what's going to happen soon, although there certainly are some. So we can't always measure their word against the events of the future. But we are able to measure their word against the word of God. Again, we have the revealed word of God given to us in its fullness. God has given us all of the revelation that we need right here in his word. So does that prophet line up with his word? Is he actually speaking what God has told him? Second is Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. Did you hear that one? How different it was? Now the false prophet's words do come true. Hmm. But he's trying to lead the congregation away from God. He's trying to get the, the people to worship another God. So we have a theological test now. The false prophet may be a great speaker. They may even use the scriptures and do a decent job. But does the prophet lead people to worship God? The one true God. Or does he cause division? Does he overturn people's faith? Does he promote ungodliness and lead people away from Christ? 
A third test comes from Jeremiah 23. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Oof. Jeremiah gives us third an ethical test. Does the prophet live up to to his holy call, his godly call? Does he pursue personal holiness? False prophets, these wolves in sheep's clothing, will be characterized by their lack of repentance for their sin. The fruit that they bear is not the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. So we have three types of fruit to look for from the Scripture. Do they proclaim God's Word and not their own? Do they lead people to a deeper faith in Christ? Or do they intentionally lead people away from Christ? And do they seek to live in accordance with God's Word? In holy, personal holiness. Now, Jesus doesn't want us to become false prophet hunters. I'm not trying to give you ammunition to analyze every TV preacher out there, okay? But he does want us to know something really important, that there are those who would manipulate others with the claim that they speak for God in order to gain wealth and fame. Those people exist. Now, don't get paranoid again. They're not prophet hunters. Remember, these, verse come, these verses come after the call not to judge others. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. But again, it's a call to exercise godly discernment. The judgment of God, Jesus says, awaits those who teach anything other than Christ. They'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. So that's a warning for anybody who would want to teach the word. A call out for your motivations. Is it for personal gain and wealth? Or is it to see the kingdom of God built? Are we, as a people, using our discernment to listen to the right people, the right teachers? Are we careful not to let wolves into our homes and our churches? In the immediate context, Jesus is referring to other teachers of the time, like the Pharisees, who, if given the chance, would lead Christians away from Christ and back to the law with their intelligence and their rhetoric. And he's telling these early followers to expect wolves in the future. And a lot of the New Testament is written against false prophets who were spreading various heresies in different churches. So we need to beware of wolves. The third pair is the known or the unknown. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Verses 21 and 23 to 23 are probably the most searching and challenging verses of the whole bunch today. 
for many reasons. <clears throat> they make us think about our salvation. They question where our faith lies. And they put our assurance under a microscope. Verse 21 is a key verse for Jesus' epilogue in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, this is incredibly helpful. It's not those who simply call out to Jesus who enter the kingdom, but those who do the will of the Father. It's not those who talk the talk. It's those who walk the walk. It's not the hearers who enter the kingdom. It's the doers. That's very helpful and something we should bring to bear on our hearts. Are we merely hearers of the word or are we doers also? And if that's all Jesus said in this section, we might feel better about ourselves. We may be tempted to walk, to walk away from the Sermon on the Mount thinking that the whole point is to try our best and to do acts of righteousness to prove that we're saved. But that isn't where Jesus ends. Look again at verse 22 very carefully. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The people in question have done a lot of good things, a lot of great acts. First, they've cried out to Jesus, even calling him Lord. The double, the double name here, Lord, Lord, is, is a desperate call to him. Then they've prophesied in the name of Jesus. Then they've cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And then they've done many mighty works in the name of Jesus. The NIV says, and didn't we perform many miracles? These are miracle workers we're talking about. And yet Jesus says to them, I never knew you. That should make us pause. I can't imagine. I can't imagine more horrible words from the lips of Jesus to me. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Worker of lawlessness. These are people who claim the name of Jesus and and Jesus calls them workers of lawlessness. You remember going over that word in the book of 1 John. These are people completely given over to sin who have nothing to do with God's righteous decree. These are workers of miracles, but they can't even approach righteousness. These are people who claim the name of Jesus, who cast out demons and prophesied and did mighty miracles all in the name of Jesus. How could Jesus say they're workers of lawlessness? The implication, the implication of Jesus' words are very serious, so hear me very carefully. There will be those who have convinced themselves that they belong in the kingdom based off of their good works, but Jesus never knew them. Again, these are miracle workers, but they aren't in the kingdom. The greatest example of this, I think, is Judas Iscariot. In chapter 10 of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will send out the 12 apostles on a missionary journey around Judea. 
And Judas, of course, is among them. He's one of the 12. Jesus told his disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God. It was a preaching journey, but he gave them a bunch of other stuff to do. You remember? He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Again, Judas is included. He does all of these things. They all come back and report that they have been done. But it turns out that great gifts and mighty works are not the sign of a real follower of Jesus. So what does it come down to? Who gets into the kingdom if not these mighty miracle workers and prophets and exorcists who do all these things in the name of Jesus? It comes down to whether or not you are known by Jesus. It comes down to whether or not Jesus knows you. It doesn't matter if you think you know Jesus. Does he know you? Which brings us back to verse 21. If we forget verses 22 and 23, then we'd be tempted to think that we have to try really hard to do the Father's will, and then we get into the kingdom. But part of doing the will of the Father is being known by Jesus. They are equivalent here. So what does it mean to be known by him? To be known by Jesus means that you are intimately connected with him in a way that is irreversible. It means you are born again, raised from death to life by the Holy Spirit. It's an act of God to be known by God. Jesus says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Everyone the Father gives to Jesus will come to him without fail. And again, to be known by God is an act of God. It's not something you can manufacture. The startling nature of verses 22 and 23 lie in the fact that they subvert our expectations. We expect another command, like enter by the narrow gate or beware false prophets. Maybe we expect something like make sure to make yourself known to Jesus. But that doesn't occur here. There's no call to action in these verses. There's only a warning. If Jesus doesn't know you, you are not getting into the kingdom of heaven. Even if you have a great resume of good works, even if you've cast out demons or prophesied or done many wonderful miracles, if Jesus doesn't know you, then he will send you away. There will be those on the last day who have convinced themselves that the wide path that they took will lead them to the kingdom. And they'll be surprised to find out that the Jesus they thought they knew is standing there looking at them like a stranger. These people were never concerned about their relationship with Jesus. They were only concerned about their greatness and their good works and their many miracles. The way of destruction is paved with good works and it's walked by many miracle workers. But the measure of a real disciple of Jesus is whether or not Jesus knows them. Jesus is the narrow gate. Jesus is the way. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. And he doesn't lighten the blow. He doesn't give us a surefire next step. 
We're eager for something to do. We're eager to seek self-justification. We're eager to seek peace and rest based off our own goodness and our own good works. We want to earn it. We want to think that it all comes down to us. But it has and always will come down to Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes to the Father but through him. So do you have Jesus? Or better yet, does Jesus have you? Salvation is by God's grace alone. And the first sign of that grace is the faith that he gives us to believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the narrow gate. Remember the very beginning of the sermon, the very first thing Jesus says on that side of the hill. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is where the kingdom starts for all of us. It doesn't start with miracles and mighty works and casting out demons. It starts with repentance and a recognition that we need the grace of God. That's what I'm calling you to today. Repentance of sin, and a recognition that you cannot approach the throne of God but by the grace of Jesus Christ. Those who belong to the kingdom are those the Son knows. Does he know you? Keep in step with the call of the gospel. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice alone, not on anything that you've done. Seek to know him and be known by him as your greatest good and the best possible life. There is no other path that leads to life than this. Do you hunger for eternal life? To be in the kingdom of heaven? Enter by the narrow gate which is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. We recognize this morning that we can't do anything to save ourselves, that we need you more than anything else. We want you to know us. We want to get to the kingdom of heaven and have you look at us as family members, not as strangers. It's what we desire more than anything, Lord. We ask that you would save those today who have not believed, who have not repented. We pray for grace to be poured out on us today. We desire to do your will, the will of the Father who is in heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen.